it's a pleasure to have uh, uh, Dan Knapp and Mary Lou Van Deventer, uh, principals of Urban Ore, one of the pioneering uh, companies, recycling and reuse companies in the United States, and uh, true pioneers of uh, both the recycling and the zero waste movement. Um, they have contributed ideas, actions, and um, uh, very innovative strategies uh, that have propelled uh, the, uh, the U.S. recycling and zero waste movement. Uh, among the ideas they introduced uh, um, uh, were the 12-category market sorting uh, system for uh, uh, dealing with uh, true source separation uh, that has now become the basis for zero waste planning. Um, Dan uh, came back uh, from Australia in the early to mid-90s and brought with him the concept of zero waste uh, that we has been growing leaps and bounds. Um, uh, both Dan and Mary Lou have described what's going on in Berkeley, which has about an 80% uh, recycling rate, as the Recycling Ecology of Commerce, a group of six different uh, groups, uh, companies, uh, nonprofits, and government agencies that are pooling together to make Berkeley uh, one of the best recycling cities in the world. Uh, and they're also very deeply involved in many national and international issues uh, concerning incineration uh, and um, uh, zero waste around, uh, around the uh, globe. Um, during the interview, I'm going to ask them about how they got started in um, the zero waste, uh, anti-incineration uh, efforts. But um, now, I, uh, before we start our interview, I just wanted to uh, tell one of my favorite stories, and I have to emphasize one because I have many. And that is when um, Dan drove east uh, uh, through, through the night um, to come to a very special meeting in 1980. Actually, it was January 1981 uh, f of about 120 recyclers and environmental engineers to talk about recycling. This was in the middle of uh, the heyday of planning and building incinerators. And uh, Dan walked to the, uh, the head uh, of the uh, dais, and he plunked down a, a big canvas bag with a big clunk, uh, and he introduced himself as saying, I'm Dan Knapp, and um, I, landfill, I, uh, I salvage landfills, and here's my, uh, here's my working capital. And I recovered all these tools from the landfill. Uh, and, of course, he gave a, a tour de force on recycling and reuse, both environmentally and economically. And thereupon, the, uh, the waste engineers uh, in the room revolted. And we had a wonderful discussion between the old paradigm and the new paradigm. So that was one of the many uh, great memories I have of, uh, of Dan. And I have equal great memories of, of uh, Mary Lou who is just the most wonderful environmental writer you can imagine. And both of them have really been uh, intellectual stalwarts of the recycling and zero waste movement. So with that introduction, um, I'm going to turn it over to Nick to ask the first round of questions. So Dan and Mary Lou, welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, thank you. So I'm just wondering if you could just give us a little bit of a rundown about uh, your history at Urban Ore and your history in the Berkeley community, and maybe just kind of tell us how you, uh, how you got started. Well, I think the first thing we have to tell you is that Neil got us together. He, was, uh, <laughs> he, he showed up, at, and so did I, at the first national meeting of the, of the National Recycling Coalition in Fresno, California. And afterwards... Um, I was so poor at the time that uh, I hitchhiked over there and slipped out in the parking lot. 
But afterwards, Neil said, uh, well, I've got a speaking engagement in, Cal- in uh, Sacramento. Why don't you come along? They've already heard from me. I, I think your message is more important than mine. So uh, without further ado, the two of us jumped on a bus, and we went to Sacramento. And uh, the next day, I gave a brown bag lunch, and there was Mary Lou in the audience eating her brown bag lunch. And we w- drove. We went home together that night uh, on a bus that was there were so many people there from Berkeley that they had chartered a bus so the two of us got together on the bus uh, I was so shy that I went and sat by myself and she came and joined me so that was nice that's um, the most aggressive thing I've ever done <laughs> otherwise it might never have happened before you give us the details of how you got from the Berkeley landfill to your current uh, three-acre site in downtown Berkeley could you just briefly describe um, the first date, the first formal date that you two had at the uh, incineration conference uh, in Berkeley. I think, I think that's a very charming story. Boy meets girl meets incinerator. Well, it, it, it wasn't actually an anti-incineration meeting. It was the first time we had this date on our big date. He wanted to take me to the city council meeting, <laughs> which, which I, I had not been to city council meetings treat. before. What, what a treat. treat. So we went on this big adventure to the Berkeley City Council meeting, and that night, and we sat in the front row uh, next to each other, and the Berkeley City Council that night was voting on whether to move forward with a procurement for a garbage incinerator, a mass burn incinerator. So they were just starting their discussion, and Dan was becoming agitated in the seat next to me, and he said, but they haven't had, they haven't heard. They don't know. They don't know. So they were about to take their vote. And Dan couldn't stand it anymore. They, he hadn't had a chance to comment at all. No public was uh, invited to speak at that moment. And so he couldn't stand it. So he jumped up and he stood straight up and he's six one. So he stood straight up and he raised his arm and he had his finger in the air and he said, has wait, wait. You don't know. Has anyone told you? So he's waving his finger in the air, uninvited to speak. And I'm thinking, this is my date. What am I doing? <laughs> What's he doing? And so the mayor said, but but there's no public speaking. And Dan kept pursuing. Has anyone told you about the dioxins? Has anyone told you about the ash? But so that night, the city council did end up voting unanimously to move forward with a procurement for a mass burn incinerator. And they had not heard all the information and they had not taken the public comment. In Berkeley, it's the People's Republic and they're supposed to confer with the public at all times and they didn't. Dan just was upset and they took their unanimous vote and they moved forward and that was the launching of the incineration uh, opposition. That was our date and uh, I went out with them again anyway. And it turned out to be never a dull moment. The defeat of the Berkeley incinerator and the uh, defeat of the Santa Rosa one a few about a few months before, really uh, started the uh, dom- domino. The dominoes falling because after that, within a year, about thirty incinera- planned incinerators from California were defeated. So it, it really was quite a hallmark uh, uh, period. And it does prove an adaptation of what Neil said uh, in a recent article saying, if you study garbage, you will not be unemployed. Also, if you study garbage, you will not be, al- you will not be alone. So that's good for our listeners to know, I think. Yes, both of those things are totally correct.
Well, let, let me get back to Nick's first question, and I apologize for, for interrupting, but the story of how you got um, from the, Ber the face of the Berkeley landfill, which was the bay, to your current uh, uh, facility. I had quit my college professor job uh, a couple of years before and gotten involved in recycling in a disastrous way up in Lane County, Oregon, and lost my entire staff and my own job by telling them that this uh, plant, this RDF plant, the refuse dry fuel plant that they had invested in was going to blow up, which it did in the same month as uh, Berkeley voted to start the procurement for the yes, carbon sir. burner. Yeah. So then my only choice really was to do what I did, which was to come down here and, and become a scavenger. That's how we built Urban Ore. The first year we only sold about $150,000 worth of stuff, but we didn't have any rent. And our wages were low, and so we were a little bit profitable. And we were able to invest in things like signage and so on. We, Our first capital investment was a $25 sign that said, Drop Metals Here. Mm -hmm. And within a week, we had an acre of refrigerators and uh, old dryers and washers and all kinds of other stuff because the public responded right away. And they started dropping off all their appliances right there instead of in the pit where we couldn't get them. So we learned as we went. By 1983, this was, we, I started out at the landfill in 79. I met Mary Lou in 1980 or 81. 80. 80, I guess. And then we uh, started living together uh, after that. We got married in 1984 in Berkeley with Neil as the best man, by the way. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Little Rose Garden. Yeah, it yes, was. It, it was. Really, it, it was, was really gorgeous. a nice ceremony. The city of Berkeley had a municipally owned landfill, which is one of the things that allowed them to give the permission to salvage. And secondly, in the Berkeley 1976 Solid Waste Management Plan, authored by um, Ariel Parkinson and uh, Beth Shickley and the other people who were on the commission at that time, uh, they had the vision to salvage for reuse. And so Berkeley already had it in its plan that there should be salvaging for reuse at the city-owned landfill. This is a very, very visionary um, thing to do and provide, and it was contrary to the Environmental Protection Agency's operating instructions for landfills. Um, their operating instructions were, oh, for heaven's sakes, don't let anybody salvage at the dump. It's much too dangerous. You can work at a nuclear power plant or a chemical plant, but Salvaging at the dump is too dangerous. Don't let them do it. And there were some other reasons as well. But I just wanted to interject that that's the reason that Dan was able to come and salvage at the Berkeley dump was that the city of Berkeley had already had that vision. So he was um, emigrating from a place where they didn't have a vision to a place where they did have the vision. And that's what allowed Urban Law to begin at all because the city of Berkeley – allowed salvaging, it was fundamentally incubating the business because um, they let these guys go to the tipping face and bring back whatever they could and put it down behind the fee gate. And So from the customer's perspective, you, you pay your dump fee, you pay your tipping fee, and then you encounter a sales area, a recovery and sales area. So people would go to the tipping face and dump, and then they would come back and they'd stop and buy. But the only people who bought were people who had already paid to dump. So that's not your biggest market, and not everybody goes to the landfill to shop. So uh, 
that's when uh, the small investment that these guys were able to put together, um, they were able to rent um, a vacant property, well, on a busy street, a commercial street in Berkeley. And so they rented this empty lot and um, they sold their salvaged goods both at the landfill and then also Dan ran the first, uh, I guess, expansion unit, which was the vacant lot. And so he opened, he opened that one and, um, that's what they would, they would provide some of the salvage goods to that new sales area. And then Dan would divert things from getting to, they would salt, salt the inventory with that. And then Dan would divert things from going to the landfill in the first place. And I did that in part by, uh... By paying people, I developed a trade credit system, among other things, to incentivize people to come to us. We, I had met a bunch of people, a bunch of haulers out of the dump, and they knew that I had made this transition, so they started coming to me in the new place. And so I would usually give them some small amount of money, enough to maybe buy a beer or buy a, a sandwich or something. And that was enough to bring them in, and then I got their stuff, and I could turn around and sell it. We expanded from there, uh, so we were able to move uh, from one place to another as we tried really hard to find uh, stable commercial land to be on. Eventually, we did stabilize, and eventually we bought property, and now we sit on a piece of property that we were told la- last year is worth about $9 bucks, and we, yeah. own <laughs> we own it, which is really a... I mean, talk about, uh, it's not rags to riches, it's trash to uh, something else. <laughs> um, Dan and Mary Lou, I, I know Mary Lou is the <clears throat> the operations manager, and I know that Dan is the door specialist, but could you just give uh, the listeners a, a short description of what you physically have uh, on your three acres? Oh, I'm the one with the inventory list, okay. We have um, basically everything that doesn't require a motor vehicle permit. How much? I know you. The the site is three acres. How much? Um, how much do you have under roof? How many square feet under roof? Thirty thousand square feet under roof. And you, if the last time we spoke about a month or so ago, you have about thirty-five employees, if I'm not mistaken. Mm, about forty. Forty. Yeah. And could you explain how your workers earn money? Uh, I know there are various categories of how they could earn money, and I think our listeners would appreciate the way you guys figured that out. Well, Dan's the one who put this compensation system together, but I'm the one who explains it most often. Dan's a sociologist. He constructed this compensation system that is different from anybody else's. Every person in the company works on an hourly wage, including us, and that is so that we are all actually structurally in the same boat and nobody's getting rich off of somebody else's back. So everybody works on a per hour wage and your, your compensation has two basic parts really. One is your base wage and that's an individual wage. The base wages right now go from 10 and a quarter to 1850 and where you are in that range depends on your rank and um, responsibilities. And nothing depends on longevity. Nothing nothing is seniority. Because you have seniority, that just means you get to keep your job longer. But seniority doesn't give you anything except for a, a better share of the profit sharing at the end of the year. On a per hour basis, we have the base wage, and then we have an incentive. And the concept of the incentive is that 
you work for a couple of weeks and you put out and you put out your energy and you put out your labor and you cooperate with everybody and everybody brings in money. And so on the next paycheck, you get some. The per hour incentive is calculated by taking for that pay period, which runs from the 26th of one month to the 10th of the next month, and you get paid on the 15th. And then the next pay period is the 11th through the 25th, and then you get paid on the 1st. So we get paid twice a month. So for any given pay period, we calculate 9.5% of the gross income, not including tax, but gross income, 9.5%, and it goes into a pool. And then also $15 a ton that is salvaged either from the transfer station floor. We, we still salvage at the dump. 38 years later, we're still salvaging at the dump. We bring in an average of three tons a day with three salvagers. So that's one ton per day per person they bring in. This is heavy work. And they work really hard, and we have a very, very low injury rate. So it's $15 a ton that they salvage and $15 a ton that the outside trader picks up. It's a couple of guys in a truck, and we go out and pick things up from people's homes and businesses when they call us. So they, they work six days a week, and the salvagers work six days a week. So $15 a ton that all these guys bring in, that goes into the incentive pool, along with the 9.5% of gross income. And then the incentive pool is divided up that pay period equally according to the number of hours you worked. Actually, we've done very well. In, in 2017, I think the average was like $4.02 or $0.03 cents per hour for everybody who worked uh, over the course of a year. It fluctuates up and down with income, but um, it averaged out at the end of the year at about $4.02 or $0.03 per hour. So you add that to the the beginning wage is ten and a quarter. So you add four and a couple of cents to that. So that's fourteen twenty seven an hour as the beginning wage. Um, starting October one, the minimum wage in Berkeley is going to rise to uh, fifteen dollars an hour. So we'll restructure that uh, for October one. When you work here, you get a base wage and a share of the gross income. It's it's income sharing, which, of course, is different from profit sharing. You work here, you make money for the company, and you get some on the next paycheck. That sounds like a really interesting kind of social enterprise model that I think you know is interesting and kind of goes through a number of the different initiatives at ILSR. If you're a regular listener to this podcast, you know that we don't have any corporate sponsors who pay to put ads on our show. The reason is that our mission at ILSR is to reinvigorate democracy by decentralizing economic power. So it doesn't make a lot of sense for us to carry ads from these national companies. Instead, we rely on you, our listeners. Your donations not only underwrite this podcast, but also help us produce all of the research and resources we make available for free on our website, ILSR.org. Every year, ILSR's small staff help hundreds of communities challenge monopoly power directly and rebuild their local economies. So, please take a minute and go to ILSR.org and click on the Donate page. That's ILSR.org donate. If making a donation isn't something you can do, please consider helping us in other ways. One great thing you can do is to rate and review this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ratings help us reach a wider audience, so it's hugely helpful when you do that. One other thing you can do is sign up for one of our newsletters and share it with your friends. And now, back to Dan and Mary Lou, co-founders of Urban Ore in Berkeley, California. 
I think for a lot of our listeners, you know, they hear Berkeley, California, they, they think UC Berkeley, and they maybe not don't know a lot about it outside of some um, kind of activist base. So my, my question is, how does, uh, how does your work at Urban Ore kind of fit into the local activist movement? And it, you know, it already sounds like you started off this enterprise um, with some tension with the local government, you know, in the county and the city council, and, and how, how has that kind of shaped into what uh, Urban Ore has become? We feel that what we're part of is something that we're now trying to defend from the waste managers uh, who are still in control in Berkeley, even though we've taken away more than half of their market share. And by that I mean Berkeley has reduced landfilling as of two years ago by 55%. That means... That's not this funny number that they call uh, diversion, which is full of things that are really fake recycling. Uh, this is real stuff. This is really where the rubber meets the road when you can stop landfilling. So 56% is how far down we've taken garbage in Berkeley uh, over the years, and we've done that through six different major re- uh, materials recovery enterprises. Uh, we wrote the zoning law that recognizes materials recovery enterprises as a business type that can exist on mixed-use light industrial land. We had to do that in order to move to our present location. We've managed to um, weather all this somehow. We're still in the midst of it, though, still fighting. You have to fight for your life all the time, all the time. Uh, We at the Institute and our audience are made up of uh, many activists, so we, we know what you're talking about. Mary Lou mentioned that you're still recovering about three tons per day, and that, that's done at the transfer station, uh, which, which the, city own, the city owns, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, city-owned and operated, yes. That's one, of the, that's one of the features of the local system that allows us to operate because we actually have proposed salvaging at two other places around here but both of them have, both of those are private facilities. They're not municipally owned. And they have unions that won't let us on the floor for anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, they're also they're large corporate uh, parents uh, from Texas, for example. Uh, their lawyers just don't understand it. They've never had experience with it. And they think it's way too dangerous. And they're, they're not about to let us go salvage things. Because they have the same waste management attitudes that Dan was talking about that stopped anything from happening up in Eugene, Oregon. Um, we, we, we're allowed to operate because it's municipally operated. Dan mentioned that uh, the total waste stream in uh, Berkeley has uh, dropped 55%, which is quite extraordinary. And um, I wanted to point out that Urban Ore is a private a company. Uh, they, uh, they, are, they are not, of course, responsible for the entire 55%, but they've actually been acting like a social enterprise yes, uh, yes. on not only recycling, but many other issues, zoning issues. Um, a lot of money comes out of urban ore uh, that is not a business expense, it's a community expense. And among the projects that uh, urban ore is helping to support now are the Recycling Archives Project. It's currently housed in the University of Illinois Springfield. It's a project that uh, the Institute and Urban Ore started, but Dan and Mary Lou have really uh, been carrying it along with some other people, Susan Kinsella and um, 
uh, wind coplia. Um, but I wanted to point out that um, uh, the, uh, the activity of urban ore is, a pri is the best definition of a, uh, a business neighbor, uh, a neighbor that cares not only about its bottom line, but its workers and the surrounding community. So uh, we're, we're really talking about a, a unique uh, enterprise. Uh, Neil mentioned um, that we act, we behave like a social enterprise. And in fact, we feel like a social enterprise. Right now, Dan and I are the only shareholders in the corporation. We have two steps we're about to take. One is very easy and short, which is we're going to transform the corporation from a regular for-profit California Corporation into a new critter that the state of California and four or five other states have uh, inserted into their corporate co their corporations code, and we're going to become a social benefit corporation, and that means that we will have a statement of purpose, and every year we have to file a statement with the state of California that describes what we did in the previous year to meet our mission goal that we said we were going to have. So we're going to uh, establish ourselves as a corporation that has a social benefit mission. And the second step we're going to take is we're going to sell this business to the staff. It'll become a worker-owned corporation in a slightly different format from some worker-owned co-ops uh, because the worker ownership uh, co-op will be a shareholder in the for-profit benefit corporation. As we kind of move into the last part of the show, I just have a question about um, about salvaging resources in the local economy and maybe how they build, how they lead to better neighbors, better neighborhoods, maybe more connection. And I was wondering if you maybe we could just talk a little bit about that and maybe how you've kind of seen the uh, the communities in Berkeley grow. You know, the more that you see folks coming down to. Urbanor, getting these materials and, um, you know, helping out, you know, helping to rebuild some of these parts of the community that maybe haven't had as much opportunity as others. Those are the parts of the community that we work with uh, the very most, I think, because we, one of the things, one of the secondary economic impacts of our uh, enterprise, we, we salvage at the dump, and so everything that we take out of the, off the transfer station floor doesn't become landfill. So that's pollution prevention right there. So we prevent pollution and then we distribute our wares. We distribute the stuff we've rescued. We distribute through retail sales. So we employ somebody to do that. We employ a salvager. We employ a salesperson. We have also employed somebody to wipe it off and put a price tag on it. And uh, the salesperson takes it onto the display floor and they display it as merchandise. And that, tra that transforms trash into treasure right there uh, just by wiping it off and putting a price tag on it and putting it out for sale and saying, look, it's merchandise. That transforms it. And then people come in and they buy it. So we provide low-cost goods to the community that will raise the standard of living for people. If it's a building product, if it's a um, – Say you've got an old sash window. The, the buildings out here in this climate, we don't have snow and we don't have cold that causes shrink-swell um, effects in people's homes, but we sure have a lot of sun. And the sun will kill your south-facing windows so fast. So people's south-facing windows tend to rot out. 
So if you have an old home, a Victorian, say, and you've got a rotted-out south-facing window, you can come to Urban Ore and find a, a replacement for a 35 to $45 rather than having a reproduction made for a couple of hundred. So you get to fix up your home with a low-cost uh, window. Now, if you're a low-income person, that means that you will buy the the window to fix your house up with rather than saying, oh, I can't afford that. I will let my home continue to deteriorate. So because we have these kinds of materials available to people with lower incomes, they can retain their property values. They can fix up their properties the way they really want to, and they can retain property values. So uh, for the community, it retains property value. What, that's part of our economic impact is retain property value. We also provide materials for craftspeople to work with, with the handyman who puts that window back into your kitchen for you or does your kitchen remodel or your bathroom remodel. We provide the materials that they work with. And if they buy a window from us that is painted orange with purple polka dots and they're putting it into a home that's painted white, they're going to have to take some time to refinish the window. So they get paid to refinish the window. So that's adding a little bit to the craftsperson's uh, income. And when they put the window back in, it's an original window. And so people are, and, and people who are doing historic preservation and historic uh, conservation come in and buy things from us because we have the original materials, not reproductions. You're describing what happens in the Berkeley, uh, general Berkeley community. But could you yes. can you describe the very neighborhood where your site is located and what happened since you opened up there to the business community immediately, uh, your neighbors and down the block from where you are? And that's a very good point because over the years, having moved urban art several times, what I've noticed and is that wherever we move, somehow or other around us, all of a sudden economic development starts happening. Uh, restaurants, for example, buildings get converted into restaurants. One of the reasons for that is we're a draw, and people come from sometimes 100 or 200 miles away to shop at our place. <laughs> they get hungry. And so everybody looks around and they see all these cars parked out here. Our, our parking lots are totally full most of the time. Uh, the outside of our, our yard has <clears throat> gotten to the point where there's hardly any parking spaces. Um, all around us, the building, the businesses that were already here have been thriving because a lot of our customers then go to them. Uh, we've got a hardwoods place across the street and another place that makes furniture out of urban trees. And they all benefit from our presence, I think, quite a bit. The, the yeah. guy who makes uh, uh, furniture out of out of urban trees, and his business like quadrupled when we moved in. Yeah, and so then you see the same phenomenon of of uh, entertainment venues setting up. Uh, uh, it happened over on Gilman Street before we moved to where we are now, and it's it's happened here since we got here. We're sort of like a lichen on the rock. We come in and, and we uh, start improving the habitat for other small businesses. Um, I, I want to, uh, th th this reminds me of another wonderful anecdote. <clears throat> Over the years, I've spent a couple of whole days hanging out um, at Urban Ore, and um, I was amazed at two things. One, there was a constant flow of people bringing stuff 
and taking stuff out, and they all had smiles. And this was all day, all day long, walking through that parking lot. It was quite wonderful. But then there were... us for existing. Yes. And then I remember there were two uh, women, I think they were mother and daughter, who came from about 150 miles away, and they had a truck. And that truck, they filled up. They, you know, it was literally things were tied on hanging to the truck. And, yeah, I that. Yeah. and I asked them, you know, did you just buy a big house and you need... And they said, no, the, but they, they run a, a, a secondhand store. Uh, and so it, ter- it occurred to me, I didn't even realize it, that Urban Ore was a supplier to a network of reuse stores throughout the Berkeley region. Yes. That's right. Yes, totally, totally. We have people who have other little shops, and they come in here every day looking for something. And they take it back to their shop, and they fix it up and uh, market it, then they'll jack up the price two or three times. Mary Lou calls it supply-driven retail. Supply-driven retail. And, you know, the mar- you, you just put your finger very deftly on the two markets we have. The first one is the supply market, and that's the people who have things that they want to get rid of. So they're the suppliers, and they sometimes are buyers, but more often they're not because they're basically interested in getting rid of things. A lot of times they're leaving the community or they've already left and they're just relatives who are getting rid of somebody's estate or something like that. Or they're downsizing. Then there's the demand market. And the demand market is all the people that want want things and stuff. And so they come here and some of them become very habitual. Yes. They're here every single day. They come, they, they arrive early because they want to be here when the trucks are unloaded. <laughs> and they want to be the first ones to see and, the, and have the first pick of the litter, as it were. So we like to uh, end every episode by getting uh, our listeners a chance to go right from this discussion, um, they're kind of hearing about you and your work, into you know something that you're interested in or something that is making you think. Uh, it could be a reading recommendation, listening or watching, um, just anything that you want to share with our, our listeners. My very first recommendation is to go way to the way back. Uh, of wisdom in our field and read E.F. Schumacher's oh. Small is Beautiful. Small is Beautiful and well, also Buddhist, Buddhist economics are good work. Yeah, yeah read E.F. Schumacher. I think Small is Beautiful is the, the, the most entry level thing. But the, the whole philosophy and concept of decentralization and building local community uh he he is so eloquent and so um holistic in his discussion of all these economics uh his foundational reading I, I also want to point out that that Mary Lou was the environmental writer for Friends of the Earth for many years and for those of you who have access to Friends of the Earth going back and getting her early uh articles would be a a good source of things. And before Dan uh, makes a recommendation on reading, I want to point out that um, one of the nice things about this and our other interviews is that people get a sense of 50 years of, of really good organizing uh, activity. And obviously, listening to Dan and Mary Lou, you can get a sense of that. Um, the project that Dan and Mary Lou and I, uh, to a lesser extent, have been working on have actually documented through interviews and many other uh, sources of documentation, the stories of, of 
our colleagues over the last 50 years, Gretchen Brewer, a uh, wonderful uh, organizer who unfortunately passed away, Mary Applehoff, uh, the same thing. So for those of you who really want to follow this uh, wonderful movement, a democratic environmental movement that's been highly successful, um, stay in touch with Urban Orr and the Institute, <clears throat> and we will be able to uh, uh, guide you to uh, 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 very relevant documents to how this movement got together and how it sustained itself. I'm trying to think. Uh, there's so many things uh, I read all the time. Paul Thonet's book is good. Um, there's so many things. Um, the whole ILSR website. Yeah, our website. Can't ask for a better promo than that. Yeah. Um, and also, I did my very first podcast, and I'd like to just promote it a little bit. Uh, if you go to In Deep Radio. Dot com in deep radio all one word i n d e e p radio dot com uh, and then just uh, hit the uh, button for podcast you'll come up with a podcast for me that's an hour long and I was interviewed by Angie Coiro who's quite a wonderful professional interviewer and it was then put out over NPR so um, it's a pretty interesting uh, podcast I think. Uh, covering quite a lot that we haven't even talked about here. Um, she, so. She's very interesting. That interview is interesting for one thing, because Angie Coiro is not a recycler. She's just a regular, and she's not a community activist. She's just your basic uh, reporter with an environmental bent. And her questions were extremely good, uh, also targeted for non-technical recycling audiences. So... She, she was real good at getting to um, a general audience uh, synopsis kind of statements and stuff. Dan and Mary Lou, <clears throat> thank you so much. Your testimony, if you will, during this podcast really uh, underscores the principles of, of uh, why the Institute's interested in recycling. It decentralizes the economy, and it takes away the market share from wasters. And you guys have been... Uh, more than an ideal model for the rest of us. So uh, we really appreciate you being here and uh, for everything you do. And you've been an inspiration to us. We sure have, and we're very honored to be profiled by you guys in particular. All right, well, thank you very much, and I appreciate you being on. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Building Local Power. You can find links to what we discussed today by going to our website, ilsr.org, and clicking on the show page for this episode. That's ilsr.org. While you're there, you can sign up for one or more of our newsletters and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Once again, please help us out by rating this podcast and sharing it with your friends. This show is produced by Lisa Gonzalez and me, Nick Stumelanger. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunction Al. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Nick Stumelanger. I hope you'll join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power. Thank you.